All right. Um, welcome to a, um, a very special edition of the Stoppage Time um, football show. This is the first time I'm, I'm actually doing it in a studio. So mm. it's a big, big shout out to, to everyone here. This episode is powered by hashtag IAD. I'll be talking a little bit about that later on. But um, let's kind of go straight into it. So uh, a very, very, very special guest here. Um, managing Director of UTCAI, uh, founder of Interscope Productions, which is an advertising and uh, brand agency. So work with Land Rover, Jaguar, Hagen Dahls. I need some ice cream, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll speak to some of my sponsors. For you. <laughs> uh, Ch Channel 4, um, a life coach, a mentor to deprived men and women, um, and kind of given them opportunities. Um, within kind of advertising and branding and branding sector, but also as well a not a legend. <laughs> Basically call you the cat, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um I would just like to um introduce Troy Davis to the to the show. Thank you. Thank wow. you for coming. I'm truly humbled by your kind words. I really am. Um yeah. Kind of forgot how much work I did. <laughs> But thank you. It's truly humbling to breeze on, to be here and to have this chat. Cool. Looking forward to it. So can I, let's kind of start from the beginning. So what's the kind of context that we should know about you mm -hmm. um, growing up that's kind of made you into the man you are today? Yeah. Um, good question. Question. Um, I'm one of nine children. Um, and I remember like we grew up. In Stockholm, so I was born in Stockholm, and um, I remember about nineteen. Yeah, I'm gonna give my age away now. Nineteen seventy three. My dad decided that you know what, he wanted to emigrate and go back to the Caribbean, and he felt that it was it was it was it was important mm. for us to know about our heritage and where we came from. So yeah, emigrated, brought all children back to Jamaica um with him and um, back in those days airplane tickets would have been a lot of money so we actually traveled by ship it actually took 29 days and um, so yeah i actually was on a, on a cruise to the caribbean and actually landed in jamaica um, and there lived in jamaica dad built a home um for the family and lived in jamaica for seven years and um, jamaica taught me a lot Growing up in Jamaica really taught me a lot. Um, the challenges, which was there, it was quite poor where we stayed. We lived in Clarendon and um, got to meet my grandparents, got to meet uncles and so forth. And being, you know, English children, going to the Caribbean, being in Jamaica, you know, you're like, wow, it's amazing. Got all these kids coming from England and they were just mingling with all the other people in Jamaica and so forth. And they loved our accents and so forth. But after a matter of time, you kind of blended in into what was happening. And the great thing about, as I said, growing up in Jamaica, it was we lived in a country, so you kind of had to get stuck in. And I remember like my brothers, more so than my sisters, they had to help build a house because my dad was a carpenter. So I had to literally build a home. So built a home, built a home for, I think it was an eight-bedroom house in the Caribbean. All lived there, studied, studied in Jamaica. But what Jamaica taught me was... Um, as a young child, 
the things that people got involved in. So many of the young kids were always helping around the house, doing their chores. Yeah. And before they went to school, I saw my brothers doing all those things. And I was thinking, wow, for all the kids over here thinking that Jamaica's a cakewalk, it isn't. You know, you literally have to get stuck in. And I think seeing what my father did at that age, he was about 29, 30, to bring his children down and to build a house. I'm talking an eight-bedroom house. He was amazing carpenter and just getting everybody stuck in it kind of taught me things about an um, application applying yourself doing things it was his dream I think he wanted to go back to show his parents what he wanted to do so he built that home we had a land there and so forth but then studying over there kind of taught me a lot so got to know family got to know the ins and outs of how Jamaica was the hustles the bustles and so forth and then we came back in 1980 and dad decided dad had to leave after a while because work and so forth and having the kids so he decided okay you know what it'd be important for us to get back to the UK so right back in the UK in 1980 and boy that was a shock because we arrived when I arrived I arrived back December period and I ain't seen snow. I never saw snow. Because obviously I left when I was a child. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a clue. And by the time it just came. So when I left Jamaica, I had shorts on. I had my <laughs> T-shirt on. And it was like, yeah, man's going to England. Everything's going to be nice. And as soon as that plane door opened, the breeze went, yep. <laughs> you hear? Firing, I just come and he ain't got a clue. And bruv, that cold that hit was intense it just went straight through your bone anyway from there went came back and stayed with uh my aunt who lived in stockwell for a while and uh yeah just got through the old point of school schooling and so forth and got back into schooling over here so the things that i'd learned in jamaica was a good stepping stone in terms of kind of seeing what my father did and um, because children mimic what they see Right, you can tell them certain things to do, but when they see it and see how things progress, those seeds of being productive was already planted in my head when I was in Jamaica. And then coming back to England, you know, I just applied that through my schooling. Went to um, second, sorry, went to primary school in Streatham, on um, Erdley School, which is just off Mitchin Lane, and then from there moved on to. Ernest Bevan, which is in Tooting. So, but my parents had moved from um, Tooting back to Brixton. So I was only in Ernest Bevan school for about, I would say maybe um, a year or so. And then I ended up going to Towsall Comprehensive School. That was kind of a wake up call because that was like the school of hard knocks. And in there at eight floors, to get to us to get to certain classes you literally had to take a lift to get to um, these classes and yeah I remember just going there and it was kind of a real shock just going in there it was all boys school and you know you got all these guys coming from all different areas and you know just learning you just kind of had to make your way through that so yeah that was um, kind of the start of what I wanted to do. Mm. I want to go back when you said you know you're one of nine um, mm. you're, so where are you in that pecking order? I'm the baby. Wow. So did you feel that you had um, more, I'd say, kind of um, soft cuddles from your parents? Or, you know, was it just we're going to let the youngest fend for themselves and, like, 
with like your your siblings, mm-hmm. like what was the dynamic? The dynamics with the siblings, um, so you're looking at seven brothers and then the two sisters. Um, my sister Janice was, now my brother Fitzroy was the eldest, then there was Janice, and then the rest of my brothers came down, and there was my sister Valerie, then there was me. Um, but what I'd seen in terms of the dynamics, um, how my dad dealt with the boys was quite, it it was a disciplinarian, you know, at the end of the day, you know, things had to be done. He was quite strict. And I think it was just an old Caribbean mentality. Our father would bring their children up and it was like, you know, do what you're told and this is what, and it was a bit more softer on the girls because obviously mum looked after the girls. But um, dad only stayed in the Caribbean for about maybe two years after building the home. So he had to come back to England to make sure that funding was there to look after his children. So mother, well, my mum was more of a bigger influence in my life than my dad. Not to say that dad didn't care. He just had to graft and send money. So my mum um, was the bigger influences. And obviously I had my brothers around that kind of looked looked up to, but also I had uncles that was there. And I've kind of watched their work ethics and what they were doing. So I've kind of learned different skill sets from different people. But obviously being the youngest, I didn't have to go through all the chores and the stuff that my brothers had to go through. And I was, as what I said, I was about three. So I was kind of like on my mum's leg all the time, wherever she went. You wouldn't be carried everywhere. Yeah, (laughs) I was just like, they call it little washy. That was me. (laughs) So, so you kind of came back to England in 1980. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, because that must have been pretty tough. You know, um, yeah. it was it was it was a it was an era where, you know, um, black black people, black men were not um, looked upon as as leaders. Yeah. So, um, with your schooling, um, how did your teachers approach you? And and literally again, how important was education to you? Because again, like the mm. you know amount of accolades that you have now, mm. you know. Um, you know, like it must have been mm. pretty tough, but also you like must have had some sort of focus and and uh, vision. Yeah, I think when you came in the eighties, the challenges was were there. You know, you had the Teddy Boys, you had the National Front. You know, those things were were there in the eighties, were quite prominent. I was young, I wouldn't have really kind of known that. Obviously, as I got older, kind of you kind of get that more. But in terms of schooling, school did the best that they possibly could at the time. Uh, when I was in Jamaica. I just went through the wriggle, the rigmarole of learning what you had to learn in terms of school. But coming over here in the UK, just did the basic stuff that they taught you in primary school. And then from there, I moved on to Ernest Bevan. And I literally had to catch up quite a bit when I was in the UK, because obviously the schooling, not knocking the school in Jamaica at the time, it was just... um, I I wasn't from an academia point of view and be able to pick up things that easily. So I had to kind of relearn when I came in the UK and that's how kind of that grew. And then obviously when I went to Ernest Bevin School, remember I've kind of moved schools quite sporadically. You're talking from being in Jamaica, coming to the UK at um, early school going to Ernest Bevin, only there for a year, and then from there moved to Towson School. And Towson School was just a different animal because, again, being in a comprehensive school, it's all boys. It was more about just navigating through this because it was tough. It was like the school of hard knocks. And the main thing is like, well, how do I survive through that? 
um, I had some amazing teachers, so I need to talk about that. So I had um, a guy called Chris Owen, who was my head of year, um, white guy, really influential in my life, was amazing. God rest his soul now. Um, but Chris was a fantastic teacher. Um, I had um, people like Mr. Hetian, um, we had a black headmaster, Mr. Noble. Um, we had really some really good teachers, Mr. Towers. I can go on this, amazing teachers um, who were awesome to me and did a lot of great work in terms of what I wanted to do. Another great teacher was Mr. Wright, um, who saw my ability in football. And basically, um, it was crazy actually how the football thing had started because um, when I came over here and it being so cold, the first time we played football um, in the grass, I just wasn't used to that weather. Wearing shorts, couldn't kick a ball, didn't have a clue what to do. It was mad, honestly. It was so cold. And then what I decided to do, I looked and the goalkeeper, I looked at the goalkeeper and I thought, wow, this guy could wear a hat. This guy had gloves. He had tracksuit bottoms. He had everything that he that he wanted. And I thought, can I go in that position? That's as God stands as my witness. That's how I became a goalkeeper. Because it was so cold, I wasn't really good on the pitch. And I thought, diving around, I'd be fine, I'll be warm. But when our team was pretty good. So most of the time I was freezing anyway because nothing happened. But the good thing about it, it was that's how I kind of got into it. But so moving on from there, that's how I got into the goalkeeping thing. And then I really became quite good when I was like first and second year. And then by the third year, um, I was playing for South London. And then I got selected for inner London, which was kind of like one step away from moving up to England. And then I also got trials at Brentford. So my teachers brought me there, to, brought me on at Brentford, and then I got selected to play for Brentford. I got signed up for Brentford. So um, yeah, it was just something that I loved. And but I was but going through the academia and the sports side, the school and the teachers who I'd mentioned to you were amazing in terms of my development. So moving from the kind of education background to mm. sports background, yeah, how was that um, transition with your? with your siblings and with your mom and dad, because of course, yeah. back then it was education, wasn't it? Yeah. And like sport was just like a hobby. Yeah. So actually how, so how did that um, conversation go? That didn't really go down too well, because <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> I'm being, being frank. Back in the 80s, parents was, was always about um, get a trade. And the trade was always a physical trade. You know, when I talk to most of my friends now, who are from African background or Indian background, it was all about academia and becoming a doctor or this or that in, in eye aspiring positions. But for my parents, it was like, well, you know, you need to get a trade, you know, a carpenter, or you're going to be a mechanic or something like that. But I was good at art. Art was something I was very good at because I, when I was at school, sorry, when I was in Jamaica, <laughs> my mum used to always tell me off because I always had a pen. And it's always marking up the wardrobe. <laughs> well, mark up the wardrobe for, get yourself a piece of paper, this and that. So art was something was which was in me. And I had aspired to make sure that I'd continued that. So um, when I came over here, it was something I was just naturally good at. And when I went to secondary school, I was doing massive murals, like eight-foot murals in um, the school because they had um, these staircases for the eighth floor. So most of the staircases, and you walked up there, it was just a flat wall. 
And I was like, can I do some new reels? So I did Bob Marley mural. I did mural of, and I, you know, ships, this, that. I did so many different murals because, I got, and people are thinking, how can you do something that, that big? But I just love painting. And um, yeah, I end up doing a, a lot of that stuff there for school. But on the football thing, yeah, mum wanted me to do a trade. But like the teacher was saying, like, he's really good. He's signed for Brentford. And, you know, back at the day, I just think I might as well just, try and do a, become a professional footballer. And then I wasn't really concentrating more on the academia side. I was like, well, if I can make it as a pro footballer, I was like, mum, I'll be able to buy you this, buy that, buy that. So football was the thing that kind of took took over. And um, going like through that stage, your kind of entrepreneurial, I'd say, state of mind must have kind of, must have been scattered because of course, mm. as I've kind of said before, like mm. you, you like know a lot about um, kind of um, branding, marketing, business. Mm-hmm. The amount of contacts that you have is, mm. is like vast. Mm. So what was your first business and and what did you learn mm-hmm. um, from like any highs or lows from, um, from that journey? Yeah, well, the entrepreneurial thing didn't really kick in uh, until quite later on because I think uh, when I was at Brentford and I was playing and um, I got released. So when I was playing, I was playing against people like Alan Shearer, because Shearer at the time was down at Southampton. And Paul Lintz was at West Ham at the time. So we're talking like the going through the youth side, that was it. Matt Letizier was at Southampton, all those things. So it was like, yeah, okay, you're playing against these young guys. You didn't know they're going to turn out to be pro footballers. And then I got kind of got to about the age of 16, 17. Then Brentford said, sorry, we're going to release you. And again, I was quite, I'm short for a goalkeeper. I'm like five, five foot eight. So as a, and again, being a black goalkeeper, there weren't any black goalkeepers oh, yeah. around at the time. The only black goalkeeper at the time was this guy called Alex Williams. And Alex Williams played for Manchester City. And he was the only other black goalkeeper at the time. It wasn't a position that anyone went for. Um, but after I got released, I had to make a decision in terms of what I wanted to do. But sports was still prominent in my life. So I decided, okay, now I've stopped football. I still need to do a competitive sport. So that's when I picked up martial arts. So I picked up taekwondo and then I started to fight competitively, you know, around the UK, did my thing um, because I still wanted to remain active. Um, But my art was important. So after leaving, as I said, whilst I was still at Brentford, I was still studying. I went on, continued with my art, studied at Southern Art College on in Albany Road and went through, got my A-level, went on and got my, got my diploma, went to London College of Printing. And in there, I learned about lithographic printing, flexographic printing, which is all different printing techniques. Um, and then from there, when the football stopped, mum was like, you can't have to work. Because I'm I'm at home, I need to do something. And then I got into graphic designing. And the first company that I worked for, I worked as a studio junior, uh, which is the kind of guys who went goes around, run around, make the teas, make the mm-hmm. coffees and so forth. And I worked for this company called Greenleaf Advertising. Greenleaf Advertising was a Christian design organization and they did work for people like tear fund or elk the aged which was charity things so i kind of learned things about graphics then and it was back in those days we didn't have computers so we were doing things on a drawing board with no a t-square no there was no computers it was like a Hi, right. drawing board oh yeah and t-square 
So you move things up and down, mark it up. Yeah, it's like the old way of doing things. So I kind of learnt my trade from there and worked in Greenleaf Advertising for a year and then moved on and worked in the city for a company called Williamsley Design. And Williamsley Design, they did a lot of things like annual report and accounts, corporate work and so forth. Again, learnt a lot um, about that. And then from there, moved on to this company called David Taylor and Company, which was based in the West End. And they did a lot of major brands. So worked on things like Stella Artois, Beer. We worked on um, Sanderman, which was like a big, massive whiskey. And we did on cigarette branding, things like um, Gallagher cigarettes and so forth. So I learned a lot about um, branding, learned a lot about cigarette branding. And then my job, I was, apart from doing all some of the design work and the actual production work, I get to travel around as well on printing so overseeing jobs so i used to be traveling certain parts around the world to oversee jobs to make sure jobs can be executed so the great thing about what i was doing in terms of design because i could draw and illustrate i kind of understood everything from inception that means the ideas to final execution so understanding about colors print split in design when you've split the design it then goes to the repro house from the repro house how do you then make the plates that create the, the colors that will print that job and then from there understanding all the different print techniques so gravure printing flexographic printing lithographic printing all kind of different printing understanding how the dynamics and all of these plates aren't worked and then the thing like at um david taylor and company because we worked on such prestigious design we understood how all the different dynamics of those design will work so learn about the bottle how the bottle would run down the line how do you create a bottle how do you create the punt for the bottle so how does the label apply onto the bottle when it's being printed all these things had to be registered we did cigarette packaging each cigarette packaging even on the top of a cigarette tip they're all branded they're all patented so the things like Rothman cigarettes will have their own pattern for what the, the shapes of those things are. And I learned so much about um, design and I stayed there for about eight years and then moved on to another packaging design company, which was the biggest packaging design company in the UK called Jones, Knowles and Ritchie. And um, that was huge. And I'd moved from David Taylor to become production director at that company because what they liked because i learned everything at david taylor to do with brand restoration and colors the stuff that they were doing was just basic stuff over here so um they wanted me to bring some of that element into tangible work that they were working with and they were working with people like heinz on um, mars all of these other big companies but they wanted the quality of work that we did brought to this company so on um, again I was there for eight years learnt my stuff and it came to a point where I just thought you know what I know enough there wasn't that many brothers in that industry because the design industry can be quite elitist mm -hmm. and then I decided that you know I'm gonna just move on and um, set my own company up and that's when I went and I set up first design company I set up was called De Troy Davis Design um, but it sounded a bit too egotistical. <laughs> so after six months, 
I decided, uh, yeah, kind of get rid of that <laughs> one. Get rid, get rid of that one. And then I just thought, okay, let's think about what were you good at? And I was like, I'm good at production. I'm good at building production work. So then that's when I decided, okay, let's come up with a name. And then I thought, okay, the company needs to be an international company. And it needs to be about what I do. So that's where Interscope came in. Because it's like Interscope, scoping for on production work. And so it was called Interscope Productions Limited. And I built that company from there. And um, it was going to be about packaging design, branding, all the execution, all the stuff that I was doing. So I built that. And then from there, I kind of knew then I was kind of this sort of person who's just full with energy and fire. And my passion was that you need to be the architect of your own destiny. Mm. You know, you need to control the moves that you make. And that's the reason why I built um, Interscope. And I just had a passion that at the end of the day, if you want to do something, you literally have to go out there and do it yourself. You know, I didn't want to get to a point in my life that I'd think to myself that um, I didn't want to be in my deathbed. And I've got all these dreams and aspirations just looking over me going, we could have been something and you never did it. And I didn't want to live that. that. So everything that was always resonated in my head, I was like, all I need to do is to apply myself and go out there and do what I need to do. And yeah, I'm jumping off a mountain. I'm doing it without a parachute. I'm going to hit stones on the way down. But, you know, eventually I'll be fine. I'll be able to fly. And that's just the way my mindset has always been. So, yeah, that's where the kind of entrepreneurship had gone through, come through. But I think a lot of that was on harness from when I was a child in Jamaica, seeing what my father was doing, seeing how difficult things were, seeing people who didn't have the facilities of like being in the UK that you've got, you know, on the dole or people giving you money for you to do things. These people just had nothing and they had to hustle. And I just saw some of the things that they did. You know, they had people who were carvers who can just create things out of wood and do some amazing things, entrepreneurial skills. And I thought... God, these Jamaicans, man, they've got talent. So I think, yeah, that was kind of what kicked in. And when you live in Jamaica for seven years and you come over here, England's kind of a cakewalk to me. It's not, yeah, not that difficult. When was the last time you cried? Um, funny you saying that. I cried today. I did. And I'll tell you why. And we played a game of football and um, it was kind of challenging. Because um, if we were the team that we played against, because we should have won the game. But um, one of my players that I kind of really get on well with um, kind of lost it. And we're just kind of just talking. And, you know, some of the things that were said was, you know, it was what it was. It was a bit untowards. And, you know, when you kind of put the work in and you put the work in when you work with a lot of our young people. And then, you know, sometimes... People get caught up in the heat at the moment. You know, sometimes you sit back and you reflect and you think, well, should I really be doing this? And it can, it can knock you because again, you know, I see I see a lot in terms of what I do. Like on um, Friday of this week, we had the first year anniversary for one of the young kids, um, Jermaine Coles, 14-year-old that got murdered on London Road. And, you know, his parents and everyone was there. BBC was there. ITV was there. But he's 14 years of age. And, you know, when 
kids kind of lose their life and it kind of it hits you because you're doing the utmost that you can with regards to supporting them. So yeah, at the end of the day, you can try and be strong, but at the end of the day, it's nothing wrong in showing emotions because at the end of the day, you're only human and all it is, you just want the best for them. So yeah, it happens now and again, but it's all good. I, I just thank God by his grace that he keeps me going and whatever happens, you know, I kind of keep that positive mindset in what I do. So leadership and influence, um, mm. what can we do as people to be better within these roles in in like companies that we work for and mm. also companies that, that we, we build? Mm -hmm. Leadership and influence. I think the key thing in terms of influence and being a leader is being authentic, being true to who you are. I think that's so important um, because I think, you know, people can jazz things up and... I just think so long as you're doing things genuinely from your heart and you're doing it for the right cause, I think people can resonate with that if you're being honest about um, the changes that you want to make. I think also being a black guy in a country where it can be quite difficult because a leader, you can influence people in a positive way or a negative way. And I think most of the, the difficulty that most of our kids have is what do they perceive a leader to be? And some of the narrative that's been shown about our leaders sometimes can be quite negative. And um, also there is not enough representation of our leaders around, especially for our young black boys. So whilst you're in that position, it comes with a lot of responsibility. But at the end of the day, it's about, you know, being authentic, being um, honest to a lot of these children and explain to them that the challenges are out there, but anything is attainable if you believe. You know, I always use the analogy when you and I talk, or even I talk to kids, you know, we say like a seed has got so much potential because the actual manufacturer who made that feed seed knows the potential in that seed. If you put the seed on this chair, for instance, nothing happens because it's not in the right environment, but you put it in fertile ground, and you nurture it, it will bear fruits. So what I'm saying is, as a leader, it's about we all have the ability within ourselves because the manufacturer has made all of us. The point is, what does people perceive as success? Success is already within you, but what you need to do is for you to attain it by not being fearful, by being able to follow your dreams and realize the greatness within you by not being afraid. What's fear? You know, it's false evidence appearing real. It isn't real. At the end of the day, the challenges are going to be there, but you just got to believe in yourself because in anything that you create, like it's a child. If you have a child, you don't give up on the child. Everything that he wants to do, if it's crying, you understand it's a part of the process. You got to keep nurturing it. You got to keep doing it. And it's the same thing that's within you. There's times you're going to hear so much distraction. You're going to have so many noises left, right, and center. You kind of have to believe that, you know what? I, I can see it. The vision is there, I see it. And you've got to follow it through. And another thing I say to the kids with regards to development and the leadership skills, I've always said, you know, you live in two worlds. There's the internal world and the external world. The internal world is your thoughts and your feelings that's within, right? Those are the first thing that comes in anything that you do, your thoughts and your feelings. Your actions and your results are external. So it's about applying yourself 
and then delivering. And when you kind of understand that, that everything starts from within and what you think, and it's like an idea, it's like us guys being in there now, you know, this was somebody's vision. It was an idea to say, okay, let's have this place and we could make, you know, podcasts and we do whatever we need to do. It was an idea and it came to fruition. So that's why I'm saying is, it's understanding the ability that you have inside and just being able just to drive that on. And, and a lot of the stuff that we do in terms of our leadership skills, you know, we talk about early interventions and we kind of go into nurseries and we start talking to kids from then. It's about planting those seeds and letting them know the capabilities. So yeah, leadership skills, it's within us, but it's just about how you harness it and make sure that you talk to the right kids or talk to people and show them what's in and what can be done. So, so for me, and, um, and I'd love to get your opinion about this. Mm-hmm. So when someone, for me personally, calls me a leader or, or like says something like, like I don't like someone calling me the head of something or boss mm-hmm. of something because I think everyone's equal. Mm-hmm. Because without you or without people around me, then nothing will work. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, and and I just think that there's, and again, and I I'd love to get your opinion about this, where mm. some like people take the word leader, mm-hmm. head, mm-hmm. Or, you know, um, founder, mm-hmm. literally like, <laughs> they can really put that title yeah. above everything else. Mm-hmm. What can those people do to, to um, reprogram themselves? Yeah. Okay. It's a bit like, it's like people going, they go for certain jobs and all of a sudden they become a CEO of a company. Even if it's not their company they've started, they become a CEO of a company. Now to be a CEO of a company, you kind of, in some as- aspects, kind of have to add the experience of understanding the dynamics of kind of what's happened on the ground. And now you've made yourself and put yourself in that position of which of a, of a leadership quality. So the thing is... <sighs> You can be a leader and just end up being like an headless chicken. It doesn't mean, a title doesn't mean anything. It's a kind of about how you apply yourself and what are the leadership skills that you have in terms of humility, about compassion, about showing people, you know, kind of how to do things, you know, how you work. Leadership skills is bringing in your team and bringing your team up at the same time whilst you're growing. I've never been fearful of anyone that I bring into my company to work for me. If they're better than me, I love it. Mm-hmm. I love the fact. Because what it is, everyone has different skill sets. You know, so the thing is, you can't think, well, I'm going to be a leader and I don't want to delegate anything to anybody. It's all about me. It's like, well, that's not leadership skills. Leadership skills is create is allowing other people to become leaders as well. And it's about you uplifting and empowering them to raise the bar in terms of what they can do. So that's the sign of a leader that you bring people up not you dictating it's my way or no way. That's not a leader. Mm. Talking about branding uh, and influence. Mm. And I noticed this probably 10, 15 years ago, every, well, most billboards for films. Mm -hmm. And the only example I can think of off the top of my head is the Fast and Furious. Mm -hmm. It's all about cars. Mm -hmm. But on the billboard, um, the but like main actor is holding a machine gun mm-hmm. or a shotgun. Mm-hmm. And and then I started noticing all these films, 
and the billboards, mm-hmm. they are glorifying weapons. The violence. Mm-hmm. Violence. And and the film's not even about that. Or at least mm-hmm. it may have a snippet. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's your um, view on on like marketing and and like, you know, let's say um, making our young like people uh, visualize violence in a mm. you know in the wrong way. Yeah, I think you kind of have to look at the trajectory in terms of what you're trying to do when it comes to bri- to branding, for instance. So first and foremost, especially when it comes to branding, is, is identifying what you what your brand is all about and what's the DNA of your brand, for instance. So it's like when I work with clients, the first thing I've always tried to do is to sit down with them and get them to tell me about what they're trying to achieve. What is their brand? What's the ethos? What's the old emphasis of what your brand is and what you're trying to project? And then I would sit back and think about it. Okay, they're trying to reach this audience. So I'll think about um, what concepts I want to come up with in terms of targeting that audience and also the core message in terms of marketing of what I'm trying to portray. So sometimes with these movies and what they think, they think like glorifying violence is what's going to attract a certain audience. It's a bit like, you know, we I've been speaking to a couple of my business partners and we're talking about the same kind of thing with music, for instance, and the content in terms of music, which is, on being portrayed now music itself have a major influence on the people on the listeners who's listened to it again depends on what age group you're going to be working with and so forth but advertising companies know that you know one of the tricks that we kind of i know that some of the advertising companies used to use is like when we were doing packaging design for like on catalogs or you know any cornflakes things or whatever they used to put like on gimmicks of toys and so forth into mm-hmm. these packaging. Now, I remember that. that was the I only way <laughs> the product would be, move off the shelf. The kids weren't really interested. I wasn't interested. In, in know, terms of, that. yeah, what was, um, you know, the, the cereal. It was more about what was in there. And that's what I'm talking about, the influence. So the influence in terms of violence and so forth, they think, you know, if, if it's a shoot-up film, you know, it may attract certain things and attract certain audience. And that's the kind of tools that they use. But, you know, if you want to really attract the right audience, it's about knowing what the brand is about and the messages that you want to send through. So I can only speak on my generation. You know, I used to listen, well, I still listen to Snoop Dogg, mm-hmm. Biggie, Tupac, and... Mm-hmm. You know, as a kind of teenager, I'm just singing along to the words. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. and now I listen as a as a father of daughters, mm-hmm. and I listen back to the music. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I guess it's just kind of part of part of my childhood. But also, I knew it was just for entertainment. Yeah. Do you think our generation right now? have kind of lost that kind of the kind of real real life um situations and literally because of the entertainment that mm-hmm. you know people see that's the reason why certain things are going wrong at this present time fully agree i think you kind of have to differentiate between the correlation between the music in terms of the content that's been used and what the real world is about and i think some of the 
the main cause of the problem is, is that children have been exposed to too much too quickly. So we look at the, the advent, for instance, of social media and parents thinking, you know what, little Johnny needs a new iPhone this or an iPhone that because their friends have got it. And kids, <laughs> I heard someone said it once, you can kind of negotiate with terrorists, but you can't negotiate with kids. Because when kids want things, you know, it is what it is. It's a no-brainer. I know it sounds a bit bad, but it's sometimes very much like that. And because sometimes with parents as well, they'll reminisce on when then when they were those kids' age, and they'll think about the things that they hadn't attained or hadn't received. And their mindset is like, well, my parents didn't give me that when I was young, so I need to give it to my children because I don't want them to go through what I went through. So you then start kind of spoiling your children in terms of what you're giving them. And now you're giving them all these gadgets to play with. You know, they're now exposed to all this different information, content, music, and so forth. And I don't, I remember having this conversation with quite a few people. And they used to say to me, um, do you think kids playing shoot up game is going to influence in them anyway? It's just a game they can do. I said, yes, it does. Yes, it does influence them. I'm a grown man. I don't watch horror food movies now. I'm God's stands up. I don't watch him. I don't watch horror movies. Because if I watch horror movies, it, it implants something on my mind. So, okay. So you're like telling me that you never listened to any profanity when like you was growing no, up. No, of course I would. I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't. I wouldn't be, I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't. Um, but now I'm older and I'm wiser. I know that it does have an influence um, there's some of the companies that I work with when we talk about branding and we talk about music. And there's one of the companies that I work with called um, Study Track. And they're an amazing company in terms of what they're doing. I'm not throwing a plug out there, but they're the amazing um, company, what they do. And what they do, they use music in terms of helping children with academia. So they'll get rappers to start rapping about maths or English or science and this and that, but the methodology of our doing it, children will learn easier. So it's no different with them listening to music. You know, I can list this many kids out there will earn certain tune. They're like three or four and they know all the words. They can spit the words out because the influence of music is so important. People learn a lot quicker. So it's no different in terms of some of the content that's going to be pushed out there. If it's going to be, you know, God forbid, you know, talk about shanking this and doing that and blah, blah, blah. Kids are going to think, is this real? You know, some of these kids are, um, are thinking it's ideal. But also another thing which I've kind of have to fight against is that you've got a lot of these um, companies who enable these youngsters coming and giving them crazy contract, music contract, half a million, you know, £100,000 because they've gone onto your YouTube on channel and see how much views you've got and as far as i'm concerned we need to sign an artist up and knowing for a fact that you know what this makes money but the old point is you pushing that out there it's about the impact that it has on our youngsters who believes that and carry that mindset and all of a sudden you know they're doing crazy things on the road and the reason because you're gonna have to break it down um, to another level because you're giving these kids these contracts they automatically think i'm making money the music at the end of the day will influence girls around this and that and to be quite frank all these kids are interested in it is money 
That's all they're driven by is money. And if I'm going to be there pushing this track and this track is going to give me the fame and the fortune and the money, they don't care about what content they push out. But the people who are older and have that responsibility, they need to think about the influence this music is having on most of our younger generation. And it's it's for us to say this is unacceptable. So this is why certain things as a parent, if you've got your child and they listen to certain things, hey, listen to that. I want you to listen to this. We have a strong um, say in terms of the buying power of our children and what they're doing. You know, if we if we kick up certain noise and this is not what we want, we've got to be able to talk about it. As parents, we've got to be, you know, petitioning all these big record companies and saying this is unacceptable. You know, kids talking about shanking, the degradement the of what they do to women, talk about women and so forth. No, those things are not on. So I think at the end of the day, wherever we got that voice, we need to be vocal because it does have a major impact on our children. On a on a, a positive note, you know, it's like Skepta, Jamie, mm. um, Stormzy and Dave, mm. you know, I can put like them in like the bracket. They are they are like promoting black excellence. Correct. And you know, being independent, mm-hmm. you know, doing it on your own. And they are hitting a different generation, even even like the older generation that yeah. that um that didn't have the knowledge um, you know, um, of, of like, you know, certain information, what can we do to, to be promoting those, those artists, those, mm. those people, and not only just in the entertainment bin, in business, mm. people like yourself and mm. like people in this room who are mm. doing amazing things that, mm. that, you know, um, we don't really champion. Mm. I think at the end of the day, we, you know, things like you're doing now, you know, podcasts, um, there is enough platforms out there. You've got Facebook, you've got YouTube, you've got Instagram. You know, these are free platforms for us to utilize the skill sets that we have and push things out there. You know, going back to you, Tabriz, and I've just, as I said to you, truly humbled by some of the stuff that you're doing, you know, the amateur football stuff. You've utilized those platforms to get that message out there. So the thing is, we didn't have those tools when we were younger. You know, people were giving out, you know, little flyers to this rave and that. CDs. And it was just word of mouth and CDs. This, that you now have a digital platform to be able to utilize and push good content that's out there. It doesn't have to always be negativity because people think that negativity sells. And I know when you're working with big record companies, as far as they're concerned, they don't want to hear the cultural music. They don't want to hear the empowering music. But it doesn't stop, you know, people like Ye, people like Stormzy, who's out there doing their things and said, I don't want to have profanity if I don't want to use that at the end of the day. There are artists out there, you know, there are some artists going to be still trying to, do balance, you know, we'll still do the grime music for, for that audience or do something completely different. You know, it's it's down to us in terms of utilising the platform and talking about black excellence and talking about the things that the children are doing because the media has a responsibility. And I've seen it through other work that I've been doing, that the negative connotations of what young black boys are doing and, you know, it's a knife culture and this poverty is poverty. You know, crime is crime. You can move to certain parts around in England and, you know, the knife crime is happening. White boys are killing white boys, black guys are killing black guys, Afghan, whatever, whatever culture it is. 
it's just crime and it's poverty and it's happening. So we need to break down that narrative that at the end of the day, all black guys are doing is killing each other because there's some amazing young people out there that's doing phenomenal work. And if you look at the percentage in terms of the crime, it's a really small percentage, but the media, you know, put a magnifying glass on that sector and that's what they constantly push. You know, I do this, as I said, the community work. And most of the time is if they ever want to interview on our organization or organizations that's in the local community, it's all about, oh, another kid has died. Oh, can we do an interview on knife crime? And I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. And the whole point is we need to be talking about the great work that people are doing in the community. It's an amazing art organization I work with. I think it's splendid work even before we started. So, yeah, we just need to champion the positivity that's happening out there. And I think if the kids hear that more and see more of what um, can be achieved, then, you know, we'll be creating better society for people to feel safe in. We all have a responsibility about our community and our community in times, many times is not safe. Our kids are not safe. Our women are not safe in, when they're walking on the road. All of these things um, we need to address and other issues that we need to address as well, even when I keep on going on about the early intervention, is the way we talk to our children, even as men, and um, and the negative connotations that may be used the way we talk to young kids or young boys, and, oh, you've got a man up and stop being a girl. And all those things are negative words that you're putting out there at the end of the day. It's just, you know, they've got to understand the balance of, how you talk to girls, how our fathers talk to um, their, their mothers or their partners. Because as I said to you earlier, it's about learnt behaviour. And if children see certain things and they believe that this is acceptable, then that's exactly what they're going to do. If they're seeing certain things through social media and the language and the tone and this and that, they're going to think it's acceptable because that's what they see. And until we kind of start tackling these things, then nothing really changes. But we all have a responsibility. Like I said, it takes a village to train a child. So it's all of us got to make sure that we just try to put the right information out there to support and encourage our kids. You're the managing director of UTCAI? Yeah, which is called UKAI. Yeah. UKAI. Yeah. UKAI. And um, there's an iconic picture yeah. on the website. Mm -hmm. Can you talk briefly about not only the picture mm -hmm. but what but like how but how you impact like the local community with everything that you do and and like also as well uh on a kind of personal level um how actually how like do you feel every time you see that iconic picture on on that website mm. um okay yukai and um, stands for united to change and inspire um, the organization was formed and there are people in our organization was doing things in the community for years anyway. Um, but that moment was a moment that had happened um, around the Black Lives Matter with George Floyd, who had been brutally murdered in America. And um, the Black Lives Matter movement was going on and it was creating momentum around the world. And there was an incident that happened in Waterloo on the 13th of July, 2020, um, where a far-right protester, um, they had come down, there's quite a few, um, had come down to London on the proviso of 
there was a lot of um, wording that had gone out. This guy called Tommy Robinson, who was the head of um, the EDL, and literally said, listen, these guys are coming down there. They're damaging our statues. This is happening. We need to go down there and protect our statues and so forth. So there was a lot of hooligans who came down around that period on that day um, to say they're going to protect these statues, which was already um, boarded up. So it was more like, okay, if anything kicked off, we're going to kick it off. So anyway, um, there was one guy, Jermaine Facey, who basically had put a message out on Instagram and Facebook and said, guys, this was happening. Are you for going to be down in London? The likelihood that we've got all these EDAs coming down. And as fathers, what we need to do is to go down there and just try to be overseers to ensure that none of our children got ourselves into any untowards and so forth. On the back of that call, um, Lee Russell, Chris Otakito, and Patrick Hutchinson um, decided, let yeah, we're just going to go down there and just see see what happens. Um, they got to Waterloo, a lot of mayhem and so forth. And they said, listen, forget this, let's just go back. But on the way, when they were turning, returning back to the station, um, there seemed like a scuffle. And then seen one white guy who was um, basically intoxicated. Um, fight had kicked off. All his friends have ran off and left him and he's left by himself. And this guy's like surrounded by about 400 guys who just like, you know what? It's going to kick off now. You know, your races have done what you had to do and so forth. So in in when that had happened, Patrick and the guys was going back and Patrick being Patrick, you know, said to himself, listen, that's a human being, man. That's somebody's there. And we can't afford for anybody, you know, um, life to be taken. And if their life had been taken, then what impact would it have had on the Black Lives Matter movement? Because George Floyd life had been taken. This stuff is happening in London. This guy's on his, on the floor, surrounded by a lot of people. We need to do something. So he stepped in, decided to pick the guy up, and guy collapsed on the stairs. And then his friends that came around kind of protecting him. And because Bachelor was kind of the strongest out of all the guys who potentially could pick him up, picked him up, put him over his shoulder, and then um, marched him off to the police. And the crazy thing about when they marched him off to the police, um, there's quite a lot of police officers there that had GoPro cameras, right? So they were literally was recording what was going on. And the thing is, they could have intervened if they wanted to, but unfortunately they didn't. So when Patrick had brought him, left him there, they just walked off. But what happened, there was a guy there, from Reuters were taking a photograph and the next day, bam, that image just kind of went viral. And when it went viral, you know, all the media stations wanted to interview the guys, what was happening and so forth. And I was taken aback by it as well. And I just thought, wow, you know, we can't allow this movement um, or that moment just to remain static. Um, I'd already, I knew Jermaine Facey because Jermaine used to play for, for Norton. For Norton. Yeah. yeah, he used to play for Norton Football Club. And um, crazy player, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I kind of I reached out to Jermaine and said, You know what, you guys are doing, and it was like they were just having interviews after interviews. And then I said, You know what, obviously, this is my bag, I've been doing branding for years, and um, let's just see what we can do with this moment. And then what happened, 
Um, he spoke to the rest of the guys. So yeah, let's get together. Got together, and then there's another um, guy that I used to work with, um, Mr. Richard Pasco, who's the founder of Rampage and um, Sound System. So Rampage, he founded Carnival. He was the founder for that, and I'd worked with Richard many, many years. And I, I reached out to him and I said, "Listen, I've got this idea, and what I'm planning to do is to take that moment and turn that moment into a movement. Um, what do you think about it?" And at first I said, okay, fine. I know the way you work, Troy. I know that you are a perfectionist. I don't know how Richard worked because I'd done work with him before um, through the entertainment industry. We'd done stuff with um, Mobos, Shaggy. We did stuff um, in Germany. We brought people over. So I know the way he works as um, an artist and how we can do things. And then we met up, went around his house. And I think the original name that the guys that went to come up with was Fathers for Change. And we thought, you know, if you put Fathers for Change, you alienate too many people. And it's just going to sound like, you know, it's one of these organizations where fathers have got problem, can't see their children and blah, blah, blah. And it's that. And I thought, no, 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 let's just think of something. And I remembered um, Richard and I, we just sat down and we talked. And then um, I remembered Obama's inaugural speech and he said this was not about black america or white america or hispanic america this was about the united states of america and i thought yeah united would be a good great name because then it encompasses everybody and then we thought about what happened on the day and patrick rescuing the far right protester or the rather guys as well um i changed the narrative because if he had died, the newspaper the following day would have been completely different. And then we thought, okay, because the narrative was changed, what do we want to do afterwards? And the next step was we wanted to um, inspire our next generation. So hence the reason UKI was created and the acronym is UKI, United to Change and Inspire. And that's how UKI came about. And um, I decided... You know, we came with several ideas because I've been doing branding in terms of what the logos was going to be. Originally, I had the logos with all the guys on there and so forth. And I thought, mm, it's not a strong enough image. You know, the image of him carrying the guy would be a strong enough image. And that was the image that we decided to use as the branding because instantly you use that image as the branding. It's instantly recognizable. And within time, you know, you could remove the word Yukai. It would then become like the night tick. You know, all of a sudden it's like it's correct. It's this and that. So it was when people see, saw that image, what does that image mean to you? It could mean strength. It could mean brotherhood. It could mean togetherness. It could mean unity. It could mean whatever you need it to be. But it needed to be something that where we're addressing the issues on systemic racism. Systemic racism is a societal issue. And it's something that we need to tackle together. And the brand, I understood that the brand stood for that and it represented that. And, and that's what I wanted people to see, that even though what happened to George Floyd happened to George Floyd, we'd made that decision had been made to rescue somebody from a humanitarian point of view. That was important that, you know, compassion came into this, that somebody's life could have, someone could have lost their life and that was more important. And sometimes we'd gone into schools and schools, oh, why did you rescue the guy, this and that? And I said, okay, if we hadn't rescued the guy, police had so many cameras around. How many of our black youth would have been charged for murder 
if he had died because guess what it's like a group you're all together it's not one person we see it all the time if a young kid get himself into trouble it's like if it's 20 of you guys you know you're all guilty by association so hence the reason why having the fathers around was important that they were there to intervene and kind of just encourage did what they did and just tell some of our youngsters kind of just try and hold it down, even though it was, you know, a traumatic time and, you know, it was heated and there's a lot of stuff which was going on with regards to what black people are going through. And those challenges are still there. But like I said, you know, hopefully our organisation that we've put together um, and the work that we're doing, which opens up so many doors, um, we'll just try and make a change. Because again, as I said, it's a collective that needs to tackle this issue and our strap line when that happened uh, I think Patrick had, had thought about it at the time and he said it's everyone versus the racist and then we kind of ch change the word in slightly and it's like everybody versus racism so that's a strap line so it just takes everybody to try and tackle that issue. Talking about togetherness and passion not an FC mm. <laughs> you are you are well branded <laughs> I was thinking about what brand do I wear today? <laughs> and um you know in the when I can I think about it I mean again my my journey with Norton when I first moved to to London Norton was the only team that I joined mm. so from 18 to 35 I was with Norton mm. and um meeting you <laughs> meeting you meeting Renard mm. Uh, Bobby, um, again, like I learned so much. Mm. Um, you know how to, you know, um, turning up on time, mm. um, networking, mm. uh, you know, um, laughing and and um, not taking yourself too seriously. But of course, on the pitch, making sure that you win your personal battles. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about Norton? From the beginning and 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 where it is now, because we're looking at over three decades, right? Yeah, about thirty-two years we've been going. It's mad. Thirty-two years. Um, yeah, I've the, the company. Sorry, Norton Football Club was, I think it was formed in yeah, uh, nineteen ninety-two, nineteen ninety, no, nineteen ninety-one, um, by Trevor Bryan. I think they were called Barracudas before. And they became Norton Football Club, and Trevor used to play for them. And then eventually, um, they moved on. The Barracudas had um, relinquished, and then Trevor and the guys, Neville, they decided to um, set Norton Football Club up. And I think Norton was based on, um, I think it was a block of flats, Norton Estate or something like that. That's how the name <laughs> came around. It was like, okay, we just called it Norton. And that's how Norton FC was born. And that club was going for quite a while before I came. So how I got into playing for Norton, I'd left Brentford. I was doing martial arts. So I hadn't played football for about four or five years. I'd just gone off it because when you play at kind of an eye level, to come back and play Sunday football with Mickey Mouse football, like, I ain't got time for all that. <laughs> right, that's how it was, that's how it was. But then a lot of the guys who played for Norton played for my school football team. And um, they were like, T, we need a goalkeeper. And how good you are, I need a goalkeeper. Like, Brother, I'm done with them goalkeeping thing. I can't bother with that. 
And then I thought, you know what, the bugs come back because I've got all my friends around and this is something I really wanted to do. I just thought, you've got all the knowledge, you've played at a high level, you know, it'd be good just to pass some of that skill sets onto the young people so they understand what it takes to play football at that level. And um, the discipline in terms of your training regime wasn't too much on the food thing at the time but it was about just discipline and being on time and so forth because we i think the food thing changed when arsene Wenger came so but by then people were just doing whatever they needed to do so um yeah i did another side and i remember going there and i was like yeah i'm ready to play guys i'm at me on the bench for three months <laughs> what three months i was on the bench as a goalkeeper as a goalkeeper, no, because they had Darren and Darren was there before I was. And it would be wrong just all of a sudden to get rid of him. Yeah, three months though. I know, but you know, at the end of the day, I said, the more I waited, I was like, you wait. You wait until I get the opportunity. And I think once, uh, I think Darren didn't turn up. I might have been injured. Uh, or they gave, no, I think they gave me one half. And so the second half I came on and it was a cup game. And um, yeah, came through and taking shots left, right and centre. And I was pulling off saves and be like, how did he, how did he say that? And they, they, they got a penalty. And it was like, oh no, penalty. And it's like, okay, we're 1-0 up. And they took the penalty. And I saved the penalty. And they were like, wow. Then Darren never played again. <laughs> and I've been, took his shirt. And the crazy thing is I've been Norton goalkeeper now for about 29 years. <laughs> it's mad. <laughs> 29 years, man. Um, and guys are saying to me, now, you still playing in goal? I'm like, guys, I just can't. The body is just, it's physically can't do it anymore because the amount of battering, you know, it's taken, just diving around and shoulders are gone and it's injured. But the main thing is the passion is still there. So after playing in goal and working with Trevor, then Trevor decided, I said to him, because he saw the stuff that I was doing through my business, and I said, you know, the club needs to be sustainable. So we now need to think of the club like it's a business. We've got to make sure that it's viable in terms of finance and making sure that things can be sustainable. Um, so then I, I then got the position as chairman uh, when I finished to run the club. And then I decided to um, bring my company into Scope and Board uh, to sponsor on the club and invest into the club and invest in our youth um, because I see football like boxing or any other sports as um, a vehicle to get these kids off the road and give them a tool and the tool itself like through football football teaches discipline it's the same thing that you were talking about but again even when I talk to the guys and like I break it down and I said you know, life needs to be like a game of football. So what are you talking about? I said, okay, let me break it down. It's quite simplistic, right? I said, if you don't have goals, right, nothing happens like a game of football. If you remove the goals, the game becomes insignificant, right? With goals and the game of football, you need a time for the match to be finished. That's why you've got two halves and you've got 90 minutes. So 
if you are setting goals for yourself with regards to business, you still need to give yourself a time to achieve these things. So if you're building the brand, if you're doing a website, you need to say, okay, by this time, I need to make sure the brand's finished. By this time, my website is up. By this time, I need to make sure that I've got my clients. I need to make sure that everything is set up with regards to it's been registered. Um, what resources do I need to bring on board and so forth? And football's the same. At the end of the day, you've got players that need to be in their positions. You've got your defence, you've got your midfield, you've got your strikers, and your strikers are about putting that ball in the goal. And that's how you've got to think about when you're building business. I need to make sure I hit the target. I need to make sure that my goals are met. I need to make sure that I deliver within that time. And you kind of use that structure and I use that kind of analogy um, with the young guys that about business and trying to be successful in life at the end of the day you need to set goals and you need to have aspirations to try to fulfill these things so wow i mean i'm i'm just trying to break a few things down here so uh and it's kind of funny because when we start to talk about not and you said business and then you had to almost correct yourself and say football club but then you've gone back to business mm. and in my head that's the reason why Norton is still here. Mm. Because you you and the management take it as a business. Mm. While there's other football clubs, which is fair enough, mm. like just just want to play football. Mm. But that's the reason why they only last three to yeah. you know, three to seven years. Like Thirty odd years, yeah. You know, yeah. and you know, and uh, let's be real, like without really a huge social media presence, you can mm. still attract the players. Mm. And you know, you've and like you've kind of got that foundation and that ethos that people buy into and believe in. Mm. It's the structure is important in anything. And um, even if you're at home and you've got a family, you've got to have structure, you know, or else everybody be running well. And it's the same thing with a football club. At the end of the day, um, you've got to have structure. And the difficulty sometimes when you're dealing with, especially like local football clubs, you know, you're not, putting that much pressure on these young people because again how do you see it do you see it that you're creating a club that you really and truly want it to be successful and i know there's many clubs out there you know i can think of people like lambeth tigers and so forth and you know there are other clubs that's on the periphery in terms of what they do and they get sponsors on board and so forth and they'll go out and they'll search for all the top players and then sometimes some of these top players they won't pay any money you know, at the end of the day, it's like, no, no, it's come, come and kick ball for us. And all they're interested in is like winning, 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 winning trophies. And yeah, you can be successful like that. But then from a business point of view, that's not sustainable because you've got to buy a kit. You've got to make sure that the the books is run, is run fine. You've got to make sure sign-on fees have been put on board. You've got to make sure that, you know, the kids or whoever you're playing with, they've got substance they've got drinks they've got this they've got all those things available and then also you know if you can if you organize your football club and structure it in such a way that's when you'll attract sponsors because they're going to look at your governance they're going to look at the way you organize yourself they're going to look at the end of the day this is this is our club should run and i suppose the business side of what i was doing in terms of running a company company still got to have governance you still got to have rules and regulations you still got to pay your taxes you still got to pay all of that you still got to make so you may not be using those things on a full level out of the way you'd run business but the the, the same kind of structure and the mindset still need to be in there kids guys being on time 
or the reason why we talk about being on time. It's like business. You know, if they're going to go and work for a firm, they've got to make sure that they deliver or they're there on time or else you don't have a job. So the, the whole purpose of the football thing is trying to create structure and giving them order in their life in terms of it's teamwork. You know, you're bonding. If you got in your work in a firm, you'll be able to work as a team. You've got to be able to take instructions when your line manager has delegated a job for you. How are you going to take that on board? It's no different from you playing for a football team. Your manager wants you to, you know, control central midfield. You know, you're the old in defense, you're old in defense midfield player. You get that ball and then you pop it out to the man on the left or you pop it out to the man on the right. The guys on the right, on the left side, find your striker. You know, at the end of the day, do you play the ball to feet or do you play the ball over the top striker your job now is to put the ball in the goal and it's all the kind of things that you're kind of structuring and you have to get things organized and then when you're dealing with this organ this where people are not organized then you've got more problems because at the end of the day you're working with team players who don't really understand structure you've got kids you're dealing with generational traumas out there there's so much trauma that's in society now and as you know the sports give them that vehicle and um, to kind of help them and guide them to go through things. And what we try to do even at Norton Football Club is to make it a safe place. To me, it's sometimes it's not even about the results. You know, of course you want to win. But sometimes sometimes people say, ah, oh, why do you take on all these players? It's like, they need an outlet as well. They need a safe space that they can come. And when they come to Norton Football Club, there's compassion, there is love. You know, we see all the guys then, we haven't seen them for a week. We all greet each other with, oh, what's happening, this and that. And there's that bonding and, you know, th that comradeship. Those things are important because, you know, you're trying to give them tools to say that, you know, you being around us or being at a club, eventually you're going to have a family. You're going to have this, you're going to have that. How do you keep that bonding amongst your family and amongst your friends? And how do you guide, you know, um, your children? And some of the guys, um, they've, got their, they've got young families. And because we're the older heads as well, the football club talks about everything. So they might be like, I'm having problems at home with my with the mother of my child. How do I deal with the situation? There's guys that's in the club who's older and got children and be able to talk to them and kind of give them the guidance. You know, don't bite. This is what's going to reaction is going to be. So it's more than football. It's always been more than football. And that's the reason why I believe that Norton has literally lasted this long for 32 years, because it's just not about the football. It's about social care. It's about empowerment. It's about um, raising the standards on what these young people do. They're guys at, even at our club where we, where we do mentorship. And, you know, there's one guy that I've been mentoring now for about 16 years and he's he's done really well, really proud of him. And, you know, he's moved on and never been to college before, went to college, eventually done well at college, went to university, passed his degree, moved on from his degree, went on and passed his master's. And now he's thinking he's in the process of trying to do his doctorate. And this is somebody that never went to school before. But that's what I'm talking about, mentoring that 16 years. And because Norton's been going for over 30 odd years, you know, some of these players that now play at Norton, their fathers used to play for Norton. So their children now come through. So it's more than a club. It's, you know, it's kind of, I call it an institution that, you know, we need to keep going. So, you know, I thank God every day. I see it as a blessing. I see it as a gift. And I think that, you know, if we can pass on those blessings and gifts to children and aid them in what they're doing, that's the most important thing. It's about legacy, what you're leaving behind for these young kids. Uh, I remember going away 
on business many, many years ago and when I was working at Joel's Nelson and Ritchie as a production director. And I remember we went to Israel. On, I went to Israel on the print run. And I remember just being there and we did, I did the job and I had like two days grace for me to go around to Jerusalem and see all the things and so forth. But I was speaking to my counterpart. It was a Jewish guy. I, was, I had a really good conversation with him. And I remember he said to me, he said, um, you know, how do you, how do you think, you know, like guys, how do you think, you know, what do you think about, you know, um, what do you, your aspiration and think about the next couple of years? I said, well, you me personally, I just think about um, the next 10 to 15 years of what I want to do, what I want for my kids and so forth. And I remember the conversation he had with me and it, I would just shock it. I would just astound. And he said, well, we don't think like that. And I said, well, how do you think? And he said, we think about the next two to three thousand years. That's the level of thinking. It was generations after generations, which was a different mindset that I've ever in my life ever thought about. And I thought, wow. And I thought to myself, if we need to come together as people, we need to be thinking about generations after generations in terms of the precedence and the tools that we set now for our kids. And we have a responsibility because I keep on drilling on when I mentor to most of our young black boys that we are our ancestors' dreams. When they were going through their challenges many hundred years ago, they were wishing for a better life for us. And now we are in this position, you know, we have the baton that we have to carry and we have to continue to carry that flame to make sure that the generations and the generations after us live in a better place, that they don't have to be dealing with systemic racism now. They don't have to be dealing with all the brutality that goes through police stop and search and all the issues like that. And we have a voice and we have to be vocal in what we're doing. And it's not about being submissive. We're talking about a better society for all. And hopefully, you know, the organization that we've set up in terms of UKI puts us in that position where I'm now around the table and I can have conversation with Sir Mark Riley, who is the new police commissioner for the Metropolitan Police, and talk to them about stop and search and what you're doing about the issues in your police force with your officers that's dealing with misogyny and all the issues of how they deal with black people and racism and how they treat with women and so forth and be able to have those conversations and saying that, you know, there are generational issues that's been, that we've been having with the Metropolitan Police over many years. And how do we tackle those issues? You can, and then going to schools and looking at schools, going into places like Eton, having a conversation to say, well, okay, what bursaries can be done for young kids, black kids, of excellence, what opportunities will they get to go into places like this? If it's private schools, you know, there's an, another amazing school that we work with, ACS International, and they're brilliant. You know, recently we did a major event where we hired Fort Park for the day, and we did a STEAM event, which is science, technology, engineering, arts, and maths for 10,000 children. And it was amazing. And, you know, our organization managed to get 3,000 children to go from around, the, you know, from our 
kind of areas on um, pan London to be able to go where these opportunities wouldn't happen before. So it's important to open up these doors, have these dialogues and do things as a collective to see how we can break down these barriers because most of these children that's going to be in the private schools, they're going to be influencers. They're going to be people in serious positions later on. And if they can get the understanding or trajectory of what most children from disadvantaged backgrounds go through, they may be able to have more of an understanding Mm -hmm. as they get older and feel to themselves that, you know what, we just need to make this world a better place. My biggest, well, I won't call it biggest regret. Um, And I don't know if you can remember this. So no one had two teams, Saturdays and Sundays. Mm -hmm. And I played and managed the Sunday, uh, sorry, the Saturday team. Mm -hmm. And it was myself, yourself, and there was other members of the management that we'd come over to your house Mm -hmm. and we'd sit down and we'll talk about certain things. Certain discussions got pretty frosty. Yeah. I remember those conversations. You remember those conversations? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, there was, yeah, there was just like, yeah, it was like a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of tension. I mean, what can you remember about those conversations? Mm-hmm. And and like, what was your feeling towards, yeah, I'd say the Saturday team, mm-hmm. you know, to myself and to the mm-hmm. players? Mm-hmm. I think, again, when you run a club, and it's through the early stages where you're trying to expand. And remember, we had a Saturday team and we had a Sunday team. And where the Sunday team would have been a bit more structured, not being disrespectful to the Saturday team, because obviously I was thinking on mindset on the business side and finance and so forth. And that transition, I don't believe, had trans had moved over onto the Saturday side. And it was kind of like two different teams doing two different things. And I think addressing situation like that, it's important if everybody work in a cohesive way to say, okay, this is how the club should be working. These are rules and regulations in terms of how we need to do things. But because people are doing things in their own way, it caused friction. And I didn't like the friction that was caused because I believe that the friction could have been dealt with in a more professional manner in how we do things. And um, I think sometime through that, that could have just been lack of people understanding our businesses, but also the kind of understanding the respect that we should have for each other in terms of how we talk to each other. Because I think certain times there were strong characters that were in the club and um, the mindset, well, is like, you know, my way's the right way or it's the I way and it shouldn't really be like that. Um, so hopefully the stuff that we kind of put in place now would have been able to address that. But I know I remember the incident and I remember on certain things and I wasn't too, I wasn't happy about it because I just felt that it could have been dealt with better. And those conversation was add because I think at the end of the day, um, for us to grow as people, we have to kind of learn to embrace and kind of have that level of respect for each other. And sometimes we're too quick where we're not tolerant amongst ourselves, but we're tolerant amongst others. And I think that is something that kind of even spiral out in our community now in terms of, you know, the way 
we all interact, some of the youngsters react with each other. It's like you're looking, what? And you want to kick up a noise because the way somebody's looking, it's like, guys, you've got to understand that we are one and we kind of just have to be able just to be a bit more um, patient with each other instead of reacting. But again, like I've said, most of the time it's learnt behaviour and understand that some of the things that we learnt as fathers has been generational trauma that's been passed down and passed down. And I was speaking to one of the young guys today and he was saying that, you know, in our community, especially on the mental health side, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And there's kids out there who's going through things and don't even know why they're going through it. And and that's the thing that we really kind of need to uh, get down on. So going back to what you were talking about with the football thing, um, I think some of those traumas could have literally just been passed down to how we have dialogue with each other. And I think when you kind of learn to identify them, it's how you go about addressing it and just try and dressing it in a more kind of an understanding point of view. But it's something that needs to be worked on because it can't just happen overnight. And like I was saying to you earlier, in terms of learnt behaviour, how we talk to each other when we're kids, how our parents talk to us, our, our, our partners interact with each other, our men talk to their girlfriends, our girlfriend talks to, their, to the fathers and so forth until we kind of get that balance that nonsensical thing is still going to be going on. So we kind of just have to learn to be able to have constructive dialogue with each other. I'm going to be a bit self-indulgent now. Mm. Come on, Troy, big me up now. <laughs> <laughs> About our amazing... Uh, okay, all right. No, I mean, again, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know what? I don't know if you can even remember me even joining Norton. Yeah, I do. Do you? I do. I do remember you joining Norton. I do remember you on because we had some amazing defenders at the time. And Howard, Peter Ford, and mm. Gus, and these guys, Ed Campbell, mm. who's Kevin Campbell's older brother. And yeah, we had some serious defenders at the time. And if you look back, you know, I think I sent you some photographs back in the 80s or 90s, you know, we were just like winning triples. We were just, you know, goalkeeper. I was winning player of the year. I'm like, wow, okay, <laughs> things going on. But yeah, I remember when you came and phenomenal defender. I'm not joking. I'm not saying it because I'm here having a conversation with you. It's like nothing went past you. were absolutely ruthless. Your edering abilities were second to none. And athletic, extremely athletic. And I believe, you know, when you're younger, you've got that energy and... I think that's what it was with a lot of the players at Norton. It was a young side. And the thing is, we were, we, we, apart from training during the week, people did their own personal training as well. And this is the thing that I kind of find with um, the youngsters nowadays. I'm not saying some don't put in the work, but the anger, I just don't see the anger that we had, that they have now. And um, they get touched and next minute they're rolling over on the floor and they think, oh, that's it, ref, ref, ref. Us guys, we just got on with it. Um, and you were the same. So I just think, go back to you playing, you know, for Norton, a phenomenal, phenomenal um, footballer. And as like I said to you, I'll never forget that left footer that you scored against um, Mayfair. Mayfair. Yeah, that goal is, it just, yeah, I, just the way you banged it. I mean, it was like striker. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know it was that phenomenal. So yeah, man, you brought a lot of things to uh, to the table as a baller. And I'm glad that, you know, you utilize that skills and still playing vets now. But what I'm so proud of you um, about and what you've been doing, it's the stuff that you've been doing on the amateur football. 
And, you know, you and I have spoken about it and just to build that as a brand from nothing. And I think that is so important, especially for grassroots footballs. Um, the platform that you've set is giving people um, a platform to actually showcase who they are, what they do. And the thing about it, it's not just assigned to one team. It's all amateur football teams and the interviews and the banter and the fun, you know, it's just a fantastic brand within itself. And I was saying that to you, it's something that people are now used to seeing and it's a brand that will carry itself if you continue to do it. I know you you and I had that discussion, you're thinking maybe I should change it. I'm like, no, the name is what it is. You know, it's no different when they talk about premiership football is amateur football is amateur football. But the main thing is, do you corner that market and do you build that brand and continue just to get the information out there? And I think what it is, because it's quirky and it's fun, I think that's that's what it should be about. Because people playing amateur football, you know, when you get the guys plays in cup and they play against premiership teams, you know, to them it's like, oh my word, I'm playing against my idols and so forth. Amateur football should still be the same. That, you know, these guys, like when we went out today, we played a team that's two divisions above us. We should have beaten them. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like being ready. And I think that your platform gives you that, um, yeah, that trajectory for you to do what you need to do. So I so, said, yeah, continue doing it. And what's the one word that you want to, um, I say, um, embed not only the younger generation, but our like generation and even the generation above um, something, you know, yeah. If it's inspiring or something thought provoking. Mm-hmm. It's um, a couple, I think legacy is important and creating your own. I think that's so important for children to create a legacy or an asp- aspiration and there are so much things that they can do that they have within them. But um, it's just seeing that light and being able to ignite that light. And I think we all have that responsibility to do it. So, yeah, create a legacy, man. Uh, do your thing. Just be the best you that you can be. Troy Davis, thank you so much. And, again, um, we've been speaking and and the knowledge that you've kind of given me um, over over 20 years uh and again um the moment i kind of messaged you about this doing like this some show you was like yeah 100 mm. percent. you know like i'm here so i want to thank you for for like being a part of my journey mm. and to the people out there um this show has been powered by hashtag i am sorry i a b um we'll be talking about that later on uh, and again troy Thank you. And so I'd like to say thank you to Breeze for having me. Um, yeah, really appreciate the talk. And um, yeah, kind of got me into some deep things. But yeah, thank you so much for having me.